0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Coming up, the pandemic continues, and that means voting in Connecticut's August 11th primary will be different this year. This summer, registered voters have the option to vote by absentee ballot. You probably already received an application, but what questions do you have about the process? Secretary of the State Denise Merrill will join us later to answer those questions. That's coming up. First, believe it or not, it's the fourth month since the pandemic shutdown began. And while parts of Connecticut's economy are back up and running, families are still at home and residents are practicing social distancing to contain the spread of coronavirus. But how does the state continue to respond to people in our communities who don't have stable housing? You can join our conversation today, 888-720-9677. That's 888 888- 720 WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us now on the phone is Richard Cho. He's CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Richard, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me again.
0: I wanted to talk about and, and focus on uh, the population in our communities that don't have stable housing. We know, especially in the pandemic, congregate care can be challenging when we're talking about a virus that's easily transmissible. We saw that happen in our nursing homes, in our state prisons. And so when we're talking about people who don't have shelter, and the fact that you weren't able to have people remain in shelters, Richard, uh, how did the state respond?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can recall back uh, March seventh when uh, our state reported the first case of of COVID-19 in our state. Uh, And, you know, frankly, I think the, the homeless shelter system in our state was a little bit caught off guard. We had heard about the pandemic and, and cases in New York and other states uh, coming uh, and knew that we needed to do something to prepare. But uh, frankly, the first week of March uh, was a fairly dramatic turnaround in events. Um, uh, what, what the homeless shelters across the state did uh, was uh, essentially began to implement some early infectious disease controls and protocols, just stepping up the level of cleaning and disinfection, uh, you know, encouraging staff and residents to socially distance uh, but frankly, by the second week of March, we realized uh, we were not going to get very far in stopping the spread of the kind of really rapid spread and outbreaks of COVID-19 among the homeless population. You know, picture uh, a typical shelter where people are sleeping in um, kind of dorms or, or bunks. Uh, you have beds stacked on top of each other. You have uh, beds that are spaced typically inches apart. Uh, and everything we had been hearing from CDC and from other communities was, Uh, that's just a a recipe for disaster with respect to really quick spread of COVID-19. So uh, we we work with the state and convince them that uh, we need to do something to protect the homeless population. By the way, by doing that, we would not only protect the homeless population and the staff who serve them, but also the broader community because people who are in shelters are there at night, they're sleeping in tight quarters, uh, and out uh, during the day they're out and about in the community. Mm -hmm. So we could potentially see uh, shelters be a vector for community spread of of COVID-19. So we work with the state to convince them to authorize the uh, statewide decompression of shelters, essentially where uh, the state contracted with hotels across our state. And we moved uh, within a matter of a few weeks about 50 percent of our homeless shelter population out into hotel rooms. Mm
0: -hmm. When you said 50 percent of the homeless population, how many people are we talking about?
1: So uh, first week of March or so, we had uh, exactly 2009 people who were sleeping in shelters across our state. Um, Also, keep in mind, uh, we were just at the tail end of the winter months. And so, Mm -hmm. um, as many people know, uh, during the winter months, we opened overflow shelters and warming centers throughout the state. So we actually had a slightly larger um, homeless sheltered population uh, at that time. Uh, And so we had 2,009 people there. Um, Over the course of several weeks, um, by uh, early April, we had uh, 1,000 people moved out of homeless shelters and into 15 different hotels across the state.
0: So tell me a little bit more about how you coordinated that, this idea that you need to move people into hotel rooms or motel rooms. I mean, I'm just curious, the effort that must have taken and to find the space and then also the cost, Richard.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of sleepless nights uh, on the part of myself, my team, as well as all the providers across the state. Uh, I know uh, Margaret from Columbus House is here. Her team was incredible in, in what they've done. Uh, essentially we, we work really closely with the state's, uh, unified command. The, the state of Connecticut is fortunate to have a really impressive emergency response system, which kicked into action. Uh, basically on, on March 9th, uh, we had a phone call with, uh, leadership within our state government and, and told them that, uh, the decompression of shelters wasn't, uh, urgent priority. They got it. Uh, within several days, they mobilized the State Department of Administrative Services, the Department of Housing, the Department of Public Health, uh, and the Department of Emergency Management and Homeland Security to work with us on an interagency basis to help coordinate that. Uh, Department of Administrative Services got on the phone. Uh, they called just about every hotel they could think of that, uh, were in close proximity to the shelters that we were trying to decompress. Uh, and they negotiated contracts. Um, Department of Emergency Management and Homeland Security, uh, received uh, authorization from FEMA to, to have the costs associated with moving homeless shelter residents into hotels Uh, along with staffing and meals and and supplies uh, a reimbursable cost uh, by FEMA. Uh, And the Department of Housing worked with our state's Office of uh, Policy Management to uh, identify the funding that could provide the upfront cost uh, to pay for those hotels. So Mm -hmm. I have to uh, say a lot of kudos goes to our state government um, agencies and partners for what they've done to help coordinate this effort, uh, really utilizing the purchasing power of the state, uh, the resources that the state has, the relationship with the federal government to really assist us in this effort. So um, all those 15 hotels are contracted by um, our state government. Um, They're paying for those costs. They're getting reimbursement from the federal government. Uh, And then we worked with the network of homeless shelter providers across the state to uh, really coordinate that relocation effort. It was, frankly, a lot of phone calls, a lot of coordination, uh, just a lot of communication to to Mm -hmm. coordinate a massive effort. 63 different shelters uh, decompressed into 15 different
0: Mm -hmm. hotels. Uh, The Hartford Current reported that the cost to, again, house people who uh, were living in shelters into these 15 hotels was about $1.5 million uh, per month, Richard. And so, again, you said that that money's been able to be uh, coming from the federal government, but I guess the question is now as the state is reopening and we know that the virus hasn't gone anywhere, what does that mean for people living in hotels who don't have um, stable housing to go to?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the $1.3 million per month, I believe that's just the lodging cost alone. I mean, there's also Mm -hmm. the cost associated with staffing. Um, You know, we didn't move people into hotels just to leave them to their own defenses, Mm -hmm. but um, shelter providers relocated their staff and operations to hotels. They ensured that people were taken care of, had three meals a day, um, really developed um, solid operations plans. So all of those costs are also included in that. Again, the state is getting uh, 75% of those costs reimbursed by FEMA, and they're able to use some of the other federal dollars that they received through the CARES Act to cover the non-FEMA uh, reimbursable portion. So from a state standpoint, um, uh, the, the, you know, really made no sense uh, as to why uh, a state shouldn't do this. Uh, and you know, we've heard from other states that they haven't uh, proactively done this, and they are seeing... Some outbreaks within homeless shelters. Um, I'll say that uh, we knew the hoteling was always going to be a temporary effort, uh, and that at some point it was going to end. We've uh, we've worked with the state uh, to get uh, uh, several um, extensions of that uh, federal reimbursement and to keep the hotels going. Uh, but the plan uh, now is to figure out how do we move as many people as possible out of hotels and and shelters because there are still some clients in shelters uh, and move them into permanent stable housing. And so. Uh, A fairly massive and ambitious effort has been stood up uh, in partnership with the Regional Homeless Services Networks, which we call the Coordinated Access Networks, uh, along with uh, homeless uh, services providers and housing providers across the state to try to move as many people out into stable housing as possible. Uh, We've roughly set a goal to try to house 1,000 people in the next four months, Uh, and um, over the last couple of months, we've, we've had really steady progress. Uh, and, uh, there's a, a few rock stars out there, uh, in the community. Um, I can't name all of them, but, uh, organizations like Columbus House have been at the forefront of really rapidly, um, housing as many people as possible. The other thing I'll, I'll just note, Lucy, is that there's also people out there who are still seeking shelter. Um, mm-hmm. homelessness and housing instability hasn't gone away. And so, uh, coupled with our efforts to try to rehouse the folks that are in shelters and hotels, we're also really working to figure out how do we not turn people away who are seeking shelter. Um, Even at a time when we're not trying to repopulate shelters, we don't want to bring people back into congregate crowded settings. Uh, And so what we've also stood up is um, uh, fairly uh, strong efforts to divert as many people from shelters as possible. It was something we've been doing prior to the pandemic, but it's become even more important and urgent now.
0: Hmm. Again, you're hearing Richard Cho on the phone with us here on Where We Live. He's CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness as we talk about how our state is responding to people in our communities who do not have access to stable housing. That's a huge issue, especially in a pandemic. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Richard mentioned Columbus House. We'll be talking to them in just a little bit. Uh, But I, I just wanted to go back to a point that you made uh richard when we think about again decompressing these shelters having individuals move into hotels uh, because of the pandemic uh, you'd said that you there other states had seen outbreaks so where they uh, did not make that attempt was is connecticut seen as an outlier in terms of of responding to the homeless population in this way i'm just curious if you could tell us more about how other states have responded
1: yeah i mean we've we've now uh fielded calls from, I think, half uh, a dozen or so states uh, and participated in several national forums and webinars uh, where we've learned that, you know, Connecticut's one of the few states that has proactively um, prevented COVID outbreaks by by decompressing shelters uh, through hoteling. Um, many other states uh, did secure hotel rooms for their homeless population, but what they did was uh, really use those hotels only to isolate people who'd been already infected with COVID-19. Uh, and so you can imagine... Uh, The minute um, you have somebody who's positive uh, and symptomatic within a shelter, it spreads pretty quickly. And so um, we thought um, taking people out, isolating them, uh, it's a little like whack-a-mole. You're kind of uh, pushing a boulder up the hill because you've already seen the spread within your homeless shelters. I think Connecticut's one of the few states, um, I can name a few others, like Rhode Island uh, um, and and a few other states where uh, they've taken proactive preventive steps to try to move people out before we saw spread of COVID-19 within our shelters. Uh, And early testing results have shown uh, we haven't uh, had COVID testing for every single homeless shelter resident yet, but well, we're, we're working with the state to do so. And the early um, uh, uh, data is showing that we've had few to no cases of COVID-19 within people who've been spread out in hotel rooms as well as spread out uh, in the existing shelter sites. Again, uh, we've moved people out of the existing shelter sites and been able to spread people apart and also, uh, you know, implement uh, continued mm-hmm. infectious disease controls, social distancing. Uh, and that actually has uh, kept the rates of COVID-19 so far um, really minimal and low. And that contrasts pretty sharply with what, what we've seen in New York City, what we've seen in Boston and San Francisco, where they're reporting um, fairly uh, large outbreaks of uh, COVID-19 among their homeless population, uh, and unfortunately, many people dying as well.
0: Mm. Uh, before we head to break, uh, Richard Cho, you'd mentioned again uh, the efforts to now uh, house people, about a thousand or a little more than that, into permanent supportive housing. Uh, as we talk about this pandemic continuing, uh, staying in hotels obviously is not a, a permanent uh, solution. Uh, but I'm wondering, as we think about this pandemic, the fact that uh, so many people have lost their jobs, or, uh, you know, they're definitely making uh, less money, or maybe they're having trouble uh, paying all of their bills. Are you worried that that number could Grow of people who will experience homelessness in our state.
1: Uh, it's it's certainly possible um, even before the pandemic um, arose. You know, one of the measures we use to look at um, how many people are experiencing housing crisis and instability, how many people are at risk of homelessness, is looking at uh, our state's two on one info line data where we track the number of uh, housing-related calls and requests that come in to 2-1-1 saying, I need help with finding shelter, I need help with rental assistance, I need help finding low-cost housing. And what we found is even before the pandemic, uh, roughly in in, uh, September of 2019, uh, that number has already increased uh, pretty dramatically, and that number has remained steady throughout the pandemic. Uh, uh, 2-1-1 is now getting about 18,000 calls and web requests uh, per month uh, related to housing and homeless um, services. Uh, and so that that number remains steady Uh, and so um, it's uh, you know it certainly uh, was already growing before the pandemic Um, uh, we've had to do our best to make sure that people who are uh, potentially falling into homelessness on the verge of homelessness we're not turning them away from shelter only to have to go to the streets but rather that we were able to provide uh, assistance uh, uh, through shelter diversion uh, where we essentially helped them with housing counseling to try to help them either keep their home or to find new housing um, using, uh, a flexible financial assistance paying for things like security deposits. Uh, a lot of the errors that people face is, you know, folks are working, uh, but mm-hmm. what they can't come up with is, is, uh, a, is a, you know, two months of security deposit, first month's rent to be able to afford their apartment. Um, people are worried a lot about folks who are out of work now mm-hmm. and whether the number of people who are going to seek, um, homeless shelters is going to, um, increase. Um, and that's certainly a concern that a lot of people out there are struggling, um, unclear how many have received unemployment, how many of them uh, will end up uh, receiving their jobs back. Um, some of them may be falling behind in rent. Um, our state has had an eviction moratorium. Um, and so uh, what I, we've learned from the judicial branches that there still have been few to no new filings of evictions. But once that moratorium ends, we d- we don't know exactly what would happen. But certainly we, we worry about whether a lot more people will be falling into housing crisis. Um, and so uh, I think the key is to figure out how do we Use the resources that we receive from the federal government in a wise way so that we could rehouse those that are currently homeless, step mm-hmm. up, shelter diversion for those that are on the verge of homelessness, as well as provide some rent relief for those that may be uh, falling into the housing crisis um, who uh, are really more affected by the economic downturn and the pandemic.
0: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, My guest on the phone, Richard Cho, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Coming up, we hear from Columbus House. It's one of many organizations in our state that are working to help residents find stable housing. You can join us too 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalpith No matter the time of year, it's precarious when you don't have a place to live, but imagine what that's like in a pandemic when you need to keep your distance from others. City-run and community shelters had to close in our state to help prevent prevent the spread of coronavirus. Today, we talk about how nonprofits in our state are helping residents who don't have stable housing. On the phone with me is Richard Cho, CEO of Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness, and joining us now is Mark. Margaret Middleton, the CEO of Columbus House. Margaret, welcome to our show.
2: Thanks so much, Lucy.
0: Now, I know that Columbus House House is well known in New Haven, but you're also serving residents in other parts of our state. Tell us more about those services.
2: That's right. We um, serve uh, people experiencing homelessness um, and housing instability in New Haven County and also across um, a lot of Middlesex County, including uh, Wallingford Merit and end.
0: Middletown. Mm. We heard Richard say earlier that March 7th, he reminded us that was the first case of COVID-19 in our state. By the second week of March, he said that uh, people who are helping uh, the homeless population knew that they had to shift and to close uh, shelters to help prevent the spread of coronavirus. So what did that mean for Columbus House? How many people were you serving at the time? And how quickly did you shift to close these shelters and get people into to safe for environments?
2: Um, well, I want to thank Richard for his leadership on this and his his account of it really um, captured what an incredible effort it was. Um, we started moving folks out of uh, Columbus House quickly by March 27th, um, so really only um, a couple weeks into the sort of understanding of the scope of the pandemic. Um, Columbus House had moved 58 people out of the shelters and into safer locations. And by April 3rd, um, so really about two weeks, all New Haven shelter clients were successfully moved into area hotels. And by April 6th, um, we had moved everybody um, who was in the Middletown Warming shelter, shelter, the Wallingford Emergency Shelter, and um, moved them into a hotel in Meriden.
0: Mm. And so how many people right now are still in hotels that Columbus House had been serving, Margaret? We still
2: have um, 90 clients who are in hotels, 57 in the New Haven area, um, 33 in Meriden. Mm -hmm. Um, And as people people leave the hotel, uh, the New Haven Coordinated Access Network is not putting people into the hotel, as um, Richard mentioned, we're trying to divert people mm-hmm. from entering the shelter system at all um, and get them stably housed outside of participating in the in the hoteling. Mm.
0: So does that mean you're seeing numbers grow on your wait list of people that need to find uh, permanent housing?
2: That's exactly right. So the waiting list, what they call the coordinated access network waiting list in New Haven is over 300 people right now um which is quite a large number um and um the hope would be you know to to prevent as many of those people from actually entering the shelter system as possible Mm.
0: when you said there's over 300 on the wait list so what does that mean for the individuals who aren't in a hotel Uh, where are they staying margaret what do you know um, well Richard could say more about sort of the various nature of
2: homelessness. But when we when we say that people are homeless or experiencing housing instability, um we typically think of sort of the unsheltered homeless and people who may be encampment in encampments or sleeping outside, and that is some number of those people, but it also includes people who are unstably housed. They don't have their own lease, they're staying with family and friends, um, or they may be in another precarious situation in which they don't have control over their own housing. Um, it would also include people sleeping in cars. Um, so it really, it captures a kind of a, a broad variety of situations in which people's housing isn't stable. Mm.
0: Richard Cho, could you add to that?
1: Yeah, I think Margaret's exactly right. I mean, most of the people I think who who seek shelter um, are folks who um, actually, believe it or not, um, uh, we have uh, protocols in our state where, Um, If people are sleeping outside, they're in an urgent situation, we do our best to try to prioritize them for shelter. Um, Actually, I think more of what we see are people who are living in, as Margaret noted, unstable housing arrangements where they're living doubled up, they're couch surfing, they're finding family or friends that they can stay with, um, albeit knowing those are uh, temporary situations. Those are a lot of the folks who end up seeking homeless services and shelters. We are able to divert quite a few of them uh but both the lack of resources and the high cost of housing makes it really difficult in many cases uh to mm-hmm. divert everybody who uh is, is seeking shelter. So the folks who end up on the shelter waiting list are usually those who can't be diverted and who are in some sort of doubled up or precarious housing situation, but uh and so there's not an urgent need for shelter uh, but uh where uh, they're they're definitely not in a place where uh you'd call that stable housing. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, that's a lot of what we've seen during the pandemic is as as family members, as people are concerned about the need to do social distancing, um, it's less likely that you're willing to you know, keep somebody who's sleeping on your couch or in your um, spare room or in your basement uh, and things like that. And so um, we've seen a lot more people whose temporary housing situations have been dis- disrupted. Not that those were good situations before the pandemic, but, but now they've become uh, like uh, I think even more at risk.
0: I was wondering, Richard, if you could talk about how uh, your organization has worked with the Connecticut Department of Correction. You know, we've heard, especially during this pandemic, uh, people have been released uh, into the community. Uh, And I'm just wondering what the relationship is, because you don't want to have someone leave prison and have nowhere to go. And I'm just curious if you could talk about that.
1: No, thank you for asking about that. Uh you know, uh, also uh, during March, uh, what we found, you know, actually before the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, we we learned that about 20% of people who come to our homeless shelters in our state were people who were released from the Department of Corrections. Uh, we probably, uh, a lot more who come from other institutional settings who are discharged and then up seeking shelter. But at least uh, one-fifth of our homeless shelter population historically has been people who've been released from prisons. Um, uh, within the early days of the pandemic's arrival uh, to our state, Uh, we received uh, a fairly urgent uh, request from the Department of Corrections saying that they were worried about uh, the number of folks who are hitting their end of sentence. These are folks who DOC uh, could no longer legally keep under custody and that they needed to release. Um, They were aware that homeless shelters, transitional housing programs, halfway houses were not taking many new admissions. They were all working on decompressing and and reducing their populations. And so DOC was worried that um, these are folks who would hit their end of sentence and then be discharged to the streets. Uh, and imagine, you know, that we were concerned very much about the spread of COVID-19 within prisons. Uh, and then you move people out of kind of the frying pan and into the fire, um, as it were. Uh, and so they, they called us up and they said, uh, we had $140,000 from the state. Could we do something with that? So my organization worked with uh, others across the state and we, we, um, kind of basically patched together a reentry housing assistance program, uh, within a matter of a couple of weeks. We worked to identify providers within each of the seven, coordinated access network regions that would be willing to provide case management assistance. Uh, We put that $140,000 into a flexible fund that could provide um, both short-term hotel stays, um, help with security deposits, um, help with uh, other flexible needs, uh, help with rental assistance uh, to help people who are being discharged from prisons who essentially were homeless even before they went to prisons but were being discharged back to to homelessness uh, to prevent them from hitting the streets. Uh, Within a few weeks um, of our success with that program, we were able to uh, house uh, about uh, 60 or so people uh, into various forms of, of housing, uh, the state provided another 40000 uh And then just the week before last, uh, the state was able to uh, announce that they um, scaled that up from what was, what was basically $180,000 to a $1. $1.8 million program that we'll be able to continue and scale for the next 24 months. So uh, really kind of interesting that the pandemic created additional urgency and impetus for us to be able to address what we've long known as a big gap, which is the uh, homelessness that people experience after a discharge from prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're, we're really um, proud and, and happy that that program is successful. We certainly could uh, use more. There are many more people who are coming out of prisons. Uh, and hopefully uh, we could try to catch people before they hit their end of sentence. And so we can actually facilitate an early discretionary release so that, that the lack of a stable home doesn't become the barrier that Uh, Prevents them from being released from prison um, at their earliest date.
0: And when we're talking about the people who've been released and needed uh, Your assistance and the assistance of these community organizations. Are we talking about mostly people of color Richard?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean that's certainly the what you see the racial disparities in uh, both the prison system as well as those who experience homelessness um, about uh, two-thirds of the folks uh, that we're uh, receiving referrals from from Department of Corrections are uh, persons who are color, uh, persons of color, people who are black uh, or Latino. Um, and, and so um, the racial disparities that you see in both homelessness and in the prison system are reflected here. And, um, you know, I think it just shows that, uh, and we don't have great data on this, but, you know, one of the questions is, are the folks who hit their end of sentence because of a lack of stable housing, are they disproportionately black and brown and is, and is therefore the lack of access to housing in their communities, um, essentially a driver of the fact that, that if you're black or brown, you will end up spending more time in prisons than somebody who's white. And, mm-hmm. and that that to me, I think, is one of the potentially uh, really uh, injustices that we need to understand better is how does lack of housing end up uh, making you be punished longer uh, or more severely than somebody who's not?
0: Mm-hmm. I know that you were complimenting the state on helping uh, your organization and others shift uh, this population into uh, hotels uh, because shelters had to close and now the emphasis is on having more permanent supportive housing for these individuals but as uh, we look to a special session by lawmakers um, not this one coming up but possibly another one later this year what more does the state need to do to help the homeless and those that do not have access to stable housing, Richard, what would you like to see?
1: Yeah, I think you mentioned permanent supportive housing. What's interesting is we we haven't had a lot of new permanent supportive housing uh, in the last several years in our state. Uh, We're using a lot of shorter term rental assistance, which um, certainly meets the needs of those who have uh, incomes who can can work, but really just need some uh, gap, uh, whether for a short duration uh, between what they're earning through work, as well as their rents. Uh, we've also scaled up something called rapid exit, which is uh, basically one-time financial assistance to help people with security deposits, uh, one or two months rent to really get them back on their feet. What we've also seen through the pandemic is how many people in our shelters um, have both uh, not only behavioral health issues, but also severe uh, um, underlying health conditions as well. And what we found is that there's a big shortage in permanent supportive housing uh, unit availability. Uh, we're doing our best to try to tap the units that naturally turn over within the state's fairly large inventory of existing permanent supportive housing, but what we're seeing now is an urgent need to try to scale up some supportive housing. Um, I'm really pleased that the state is using uh, as much of the federal dollars that they receive through the CARES Act. Um, there's a number of different sort of buckets of funding that they receive from the federal government, uh, and a lot of that is going into short-term housing assistance like rapid rehousing, uh, but... Uh, one of the questions is where will we find the kind of resources needed to scale up permanent supportive housing, which is a you know more intensive, uh, 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 deeply subsidized uh, form of housing that we're seeing is an urgent need at this time. And, and uh, at a time when the state is facing some severe budgetary challenges, uh, we know it's going to be a challenge to figure out how to pay for uh, what is slightly more expensive intervention, but one that we, we certainly think is needed.
0: Uh, Margaret Middleton, again, CEO of Columbus House. When we think about where will these resources come from, we know that activists not only in Connecticut, but around the nation have called for defunding the police, which you know means moving money from policing towards social services like housing and providing uh, social workers for people in su- permanent supportive housing. Could that be one way to address uh, this need for resources to help uh, this population?
2: I mean, um, if the question is, is the, the police department budget bigger than ours, probably. Um, I, I won't speak directly to our um, local police departments, but certainly I think the attention on criminalization and the racial disparities in criminalization is helping people appreciate that uh, racial disparities are a problem that's intersectional and that housing is a very, very essential piece of solving um, racial disparities across a lot of different social determinants, including criminality and involvement in the criminal justice system and um, health disparities. So I really hope, and I think, you know, Richard said this really well, I really hope that this moment um, brings attention and people really appreciate that homelessness is not an individual problem. It's a structural problem and it has a solution and that um, we're really seeing the public health implications of um, not providing adequate housing and that um, the lack of affordable housing in our state isn't just sort of an issue of people can't afford their rent. It's an, it's a public health crisis. I mean, we really, we don't have enough safe and affordable places for people mm-hmm. to live. And that's a question of, um, you know, political will and really putting our resources into um, housing.
0: Uh, Richard Cho, before we head to break, you know, we're going to have Secretary of the State Denise Merrill on to talk about the primary coming up. But I wanted to just ask you uh, briefly, because this is something I've heard you talk about uh, in events, community events, the importance of making sure that people who are homeless or uh, experiencing, you know, unstable housing, that they also know their rights and their ability to vote. And I'm wondering what efforts are happening on the ground to make sure that they can participate as well.
1: Yeah, Lucy, thank you for raising that. And, and uh you know, I'm I'm kicking myself. Um, uh, actually, trying to uh, get out the vote among uh, people experiencing homelessness was a priority that we had set uh, that we were uh, about to take on before the pandemic hit. Of course, uh, March rolls around and our, our efforts kind of uh, 100% become focused on uh, protecting our homeless population from the virus. Uh, but one of the things that we hope to do uh, in this uh, year was to really figure out how do we address this gap? You know, people who don't have a stable address, who are, either living in a shelter or from now hotel, and maybe now moving into permanent housing, um, your address is gonna change. Uh, And so uh, we didn't want the fact that people's lack of address would be a barrier to the housing. We know other states have figured out a way uh, to have um, homeless shelters um, serve as their setting. Um, where uh, I know legally not having an address is not a, uh, a legal barrier to housing, but um, logistically um, it remains to be so. So one of the things I'd hope to do was to reach out to Secretary Merrill to get her assistance in uh, figuring out how do we address this gap so that we ensure that people who are experiencing homelessness um, can uh, actually uh, exercise their right right to vote. Um, so I'm glad you brought us together here. I'm, I'm hoping Secretary Merrill might have some answers for that, but uh, it's definitely something that we uh, still want to try to address and figure out.
0: Well, we'll be sure to ask her as well. Richard Cho, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Thank you for joining the show today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Also with us on the phone, Margaret Middleton, CEO of Columbus House. So, Margaret, we'll check in with you later this year. We appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much, Lucy.
0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to switch to that upcoming primary in Connecticut, August 11th. By now, most registered voters have received applications in the mail. If they want to vote for, by absentee ballot, do you have questions about the process? You can call us 888-720-9677 because Secretary of the State Denise Merrill will be with us right after the break to answer your questions. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. By now, most Connecticut voters who are registered have received an application in the mail that they must fill out if they want to vote by absentee ballot in next month's primary. That's August 11th. It's part of an effort by Secretary of the State Denise Merrill to keep Connecticut voters and election staff safe during the pandemic. Now, Governor Lamont supported that effort. He signed an executive order that allows all eligible voters who fear getting sick from COVID 19 to request. request an absentee ballot to vote in August. And Connecticut lawmakers are expected to vote in a special session this month on whether to allow anyone to vote by absentee ballot in November if this pandemic continues. Do you have questions about mail-in voting? Here's the number to call 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr I want to welcome Secretary Merrill back to the show on Zoom today. Uh, Thank you, Secretary Merrill, for joining us.
3: Oh, you're welcome. Good
0: morning, Lucy. So I uh, went camping with my family over the, the holiday weekend, the July 4th holiday weekend. When I came back there in my mailbox was an application if I wanted to vote by absentee ballot. So tell us how many of these applications went out and what is the process? What should people know?
3: Well, first, the first thing they should know is there's absolutely nothing new about the way we're voting an absentee ballot in Connecticut. We've been, people have gotten absentee ballots for about 100 years now. Um, Usually, they get them because they're going to be out of town. And usually, they have to ask for one, uh, either from their local town hall or download one from our website, Uh, So anyone can get an application. It's just this year, we got a federal grant of about $5 million that enabled us to actually mail the applications to every eligible primary voter, which means, of course, you have to be either a registered Republican or Democrat because we have closed primaries in Connecticut. Uh, So the only thing new, really, is that we have mailed out the applications to make it easier for people to be able to get one. Uh, so the first thing they should know is that if you get an application in the mail, you, there's a series of boxes you can check as to why you are uh, feel that you uh, can or should get an absentee ballot. And one of them will be due to uh, COVID, the situation right now. And that's the new piece that was uh, enabled by the governor's executive order. And I have to thank him for his leadership on this. You know, we're all just trying to protect people from the virus particularly the elderly. They are the ones that are very concerned that if they go to the polling places, they may expose themselves. And so that was really the impetus behind all of this and, the, and Congress allocating the funding as well. We're all just trying to protect people from uh, overexposure. And I honestly think the governor as of today has done a very good job with that. So this mm. is just continuing that effort.
0: So more than a million of these applications have gone out, uh, Secretary Merrill. So when people uh, fill out this application, if they want to vote by mail, it then goes to their local town registrar?
3: Yes, that's correct. And I should add in here, you know, there's been some talk about, oh, I might have gotten an application for, let's say, a child who's moved on or, you know, someone who used to live there. All you have to do with that is put return to sender on it. It will come back to our office and then we get it to the local people. So this will, it's a great opportunity for us to clean up our lists. We all know people move on and don't always remember to change their registration. So that's right. These will, the applications go back to the local towns. Uh, The the town clerks in the towns will check your name off a list showing that you're getting an absentee ballot. And then there's a mail house that, you know, this is all done by barcode now, which is tremendous, big savings of time, Uh, will then mail ballots out to those who requested them. And I should also mention, don't be nervous if your ballot hasn't arrived or won't arrive. The ballots will not actually be printed and ready until July 21st is the first day that they're going to be available. So don't be nervous if it doesn't
0: come right away. You mentioned this is a good opportunity for these lists to be cleaned up. I I believe it's been reported that about 8% of them came back, uh, that they weren't able to be delivered. Uh, There are people in our state, including uh, members of the Connecticut Republican Party, who worry that this will just uh, increase voting fraud. How do you respond to that?
3: Well, I find it hard to imagine why everyone uh, thinks this is even possible because when you think about what you'd have to do in order to fraudulently, uh, you know, apply for somebody else's ballot, first of all, it's an application. It's not a ballot. So you'd have to forge somebody else's name on an application thinking that maybe they haven't moved somewhere else in the state because if they've moved somewhere else in the state and they vote. Uh, You're going to go to jail. (laughs) So it's kind of a big deterrent, I think. And most people, I would think, if they get an application for someone uh, who doesn't live there, probably, honestly, their inclination is probably just to throw it away. I hope they don't do that. I hope they do return to sender so we can get their name off the list because that's what happens when you send it back. We can then remove them from the list, which is what should happen. So Mm -hmm. I, I find it difficult to imagine. There is absolutely no evidence that any of that is gone, uh, has gone on or will go on. Uh, and I think there's much more of a problem making sure everybody understands that they have the right to vote this year in this mm-hmm. way.
0: Let's take some calls if you have a question again about voting by mail for the August 11th primary the number 888-720-9677 secretary of the state denise merrill is with us on zoom today julie's calling in julie what's your question
2: hi my daughter is turning 18 in september and she has registered to vote um and i did receive my application to vote by mail for the primary and i was wondering is she eligible to vote for the primary as well and if so how could she get her application for mail-in
3: um i don't believe she's eligible to vote for the primary you say she's turning 18 when by September. by the nor- uh, november election before or by the, the primary
2: before the november election
3: before the november she election so she's not 18 in time for the primary so no Correct. she would not be eligible to vote for the primary but certainly for the general
2: Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you.
3: Sure.
0: Again, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Uh, Eric's calling in from West Hartford. Eric, go ahead.
1: Good morning. Um, I had a quick question. I am a recent college grad from the University of Connecticut. And like a lot of my students um, who recently graduated, I was registered to vote in Mansfield. Um, how easy is it to change my polling location? And what's the latest that I can do it before the primary general election for my hometown in West Hartford?
3: Oh yeah, very easy. Our online voter registration uh, system is up and running at all times. You can change your registration uh, anytime, uh, although it's too late to change to a different party before the primary. But you can change the location uh, anytime right up to election day. So uh, you just need to go online. You have to have a Connecticut driver's license or permit or uh, one of those drive-only licenses. or or non-driving licenses, and and it takes about a minute. So you go to myvote.ct.gov, and you can check your status. I always tell people you should do that anyway, just to make sure you're registered where you think you are with the party you think you're registered with. You know, there are clerical errors now and then. And so then you can also go right online and change it right on the spot.
0: Secretary Merrill, I am wondering, because we're in a pandemic, again, people don't want to be they want to be able to continue to social or physical distance. And in the past, I think people the voting uh, rate for absentees about 7%. How many uh, people do you anticipate will want to vote this way come the primary? Well,
3: that's a great question, because we've been asking ourselves that for quite a while. You're right, we're not Accustomed to a lot of absentee ballot voting in Connecticut because simply people just seem to prefer to go to the polls We also frankly have fewer opportunities um, Than any other state in the country now. We have no days of early voting and we have no uh, easy access to absentee ballots except now in this one situation Uh, So I've been looking around the country, Um, states that figured nobody was coming to the polling places got in trouble because they collapsed a lot of the polling places down to in some cases one or two. You saw that in Milwaukee, you saw that in Atlanta, Philadelphia, uh, Kentucky. So I, I think we have to be prepared for either you know people in Connecticut still like going to the polls and we are doing everything we can following all the CDC guidelines for polling places and we're not changing very many of them except in extraordinary circumstances so my version is when I talk to the election officials around the state I think we have to be prepared for anything I think we have to be prepared for lots of people coming to the polling places if they're fired up about doing that or a lot of absentee ballots, which will, I'll be honest, be a bit of a challenge for us. We've had to use a a lot of additional of the federal money to enhance the local town clerk's ability to process what we think will be more absentee ballots.
0: Uh, Doris is calling in from Southbury with an important question. Doris, uh, tell us your question for Secretary Merrill.
2: Yeah, hi. Um, I was curious. I got the ballot in the mail. I filled it out. I checked out, checked the first option, which has to do with the virus, and I sent it in. And then I was thinking, do I have the option to change my mind and actually vote at the polls at the, uh, when the primary comes, or by the fact that I've already sent in the ballot, I must vote that way, or do I have an option?
3: Um, you do have an option as long as you haven't actually voted the ballot that you'll get because you sent the application in, so presumably uh, after July uh, 21st, you'll get a ballot in the mail. If you don't vote that ballot, then it's not a problem because you haven't voted twice. The minute you vote that ballot and mail it in or drop it in the ballot box, the town clerk checks you off the list with a little A-B, and, and then if you tried to vote after that, uh, that would be a problem and you would be in big trouble. Uh, but if you have not voted twice, the only prohibition is that you don't vote twice. So you still have an option to go if you wish, as long as you don't mail the ballot back.
0: Secretary Mayor, before we run out of time, I I wanted to go over the proper way to fill out these absentee ballots once someone receives them after July 21st, because I was reading that, you know, it's common errors like not remembering to sign an envelope uh, that can cause your absentee ballot to not be counted.
3: Yes, that's correct. That's uh, the biggest problem we have is that people forget to sign one of the two envelopes that come. The The instructions are clear, but you know, sometimes people just sort of forget and then stick it in the envelope without a signature. To be honest, we only have about a 4% rate of that happening with our current number of absentee ballots, as you say, a small number. But uh, just remember to follow the instructions explicitly. Uh, because that's one of our checks and balances on how we make sure that there isn't fraud with absentee ballots. There are a lot of checks and balances, much more than most states, honestly. Some states, they just mail you the ballot. They don't even bother with the application and all that. Uh, So just be very, very careful when you do that. And honestly, I'm recommending that you drop it off in a ballot box, which will be mounted on the outside of your city or town hall, uh, because one of the questions I have is the capacity of the U.S. Postal Service to be able to handle all this. We've been in constant communication with them, and uh, your your the ballot you'll get will have a special color, I think it's green, around the edge to show that it's election mail. And you will have, um, it'll be prepaid, so you don't have to worry about finding a stamp and all that. But if you wanna really, really be sure that your ballot gets received in time, I would drop it off in a ballot box if you're like in the last week before the primary.
0: We just have a, a couple of minutes left, Secretary Merrill. I, I am curious. Uh, I was reading the National Conference for State Legislatures. There are 19 states that actually have laws in place that require local election officials to notify voters if there's time, if there's an issue with that mail-in ballot. That's not something that, that Connecticut has. Are you worried that uh, local officials are going to be inundated with ballots? And if uh, you know people aren't filling them out correctly, they just don't get counted and people lose their chance to vote on August 11th
3: well you know we don't have a requirement here of that but a lot of the local officials will do that if there's some problem with the absentee ballot now I I have to remind people a great deal of federal money is available to every town every town has submitted to us what we call a safe polls plan and they will tell us if they need uh, dollars resources for extra help in the town clerk's office uh, and and they're using it. They're 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 hiring on a lot of uh, part time help, and hopefully they'll be able to uh, note if somebody forgot to sign the envelope or whatever the issue is. Uh, and be able to contact them. But, you know, it's, it's another example of how we need a lot more technology in the area of elections. Um, you know, for example, we should probably have on file some sort of email for every voter so that we can contact them easily. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times we don't have a contact like that. So it's much more difficult to find them and notify them of mm-hmm. things like that. So we're getting there. We've come a long way. Uh, we, we have a ways to go.
0: We'll have to leave it there. Secretary of the State Denise Merrill, again, the primary is August 11th. You said absentee ballots will be printed after July 21st, so people can look out for those if they send in their application. Secretary Merrill, thank you for your time today.
3: Okay, thank you, Lucy.
0: Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nolpothanchel. Thanks for listening.